It seems like all anyone can talk about now is ChatGPT, OpenAI, AI, large language models. We're writing a lot about it at CyberScoop. And Tanya Riley, who is here with me, is also writing quite a bit about AI. But I want to know if you've actually used ChatGPT first. Of course. How do you think I write all my great headlines, Mike? Oh, is that is that that's what happens? That's my secret. How about you? Are you using it? I've used it for stupid things, like I asked it to write a rap in the style of Snoop Dogg about modernist architecture. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> and I. I I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember it, but it did come oh, up with boo. some. I think one of the one of the lines were something like "clean lines." That's the vibe. That's the vibe, Mike. <laughs> so we're going to talk about ChatGPT, OpenAI. We have an interview on this episode that Elias Grohl, one of our colleagues, did with Ann Newberger, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology in the White House. She's working very hard on AI regulations and thinking about where all of this goes. We're going to talk about that and a lot more. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. So Tanya Riley covers privacy and emerging technology and lots of other issues for CyberScoop. You've been tracking some really interesting stories related to ChatGPT, AI. What have you been following this week that's interesting? Well, this might be a little less exciting than AI, but the White House released its cybersecurity budget priorities this week. Not going to be any big surprise to folks following the national cyber strategy. We've got things like defending critical infrastructure, driving security through the federal agency's different purchasing powers and workforce Cyber is generally a pretty bipartisan issue, so I don't see a lot of conflict here. I guess we'll have to see how big of a piggy bank they're looking for. Right. And their priorities basically reflect the same things they outlined in the National Cybersecurity Strategy that came out earlier this year. That's right, Mike. So a lot of the same things, and I think those will be themes we'll see from the Office of the National Cyber Director in a variety of ways in the coming months. Okay. There is some news around OpenAI, which is pretty much the leading company, they've created ChatGPT and they're really pushing a lot of things around AI. That's right. So yesterday, a California law firm filed a lawsuit with 16 different plaintiffs. It's a really interesting lawsuit. Basically, they're saying that through scraping the data across the web of millions of people that OpenAI, ChatGPT have violated copyright rules, which is something we haven't quite seen in this context before. We've seen other data scraping lawsuits but what's interesting here is obviously OpenAI is a leader in the AI field and all these models are built off data that's great from their web, right? So if this lawsuit goes anywhere, that could have really big implications for the industry. Yeah. And if you think about like all the information that you're giving these models, right, they're collecting it, they're gathering it, they're storing it. They're much more important things than my request to write a rap song about modernist architects. 
Right. Because when you're scraping this data, you're getting things like people's addresses, their phone numbers, and this can be used in a lot of, as the lawsuit points out, can be used by a bunch of malicious actors for unintended purposes and really creates, as the lawsuit puts it, this existential risk. So we'll see what the courts think about that. When we're thinking about sort of the doom and gloom around AI, which a lot of people have been talking about, Elias, our colleague, did write a story looking at how we could sort of think about arms control mechanisms that emerged in the post-war era as a way of informing and influencing how we think about regulations for AI. Fascinating parallels there. Think about nuclear bombs versus AI. I'm not so sure we know or we don't have convincing evidence yet that super intelligent machines combined with quantum computing are going to be as dangerous as a nuclear weapon, but it's certainly something that people are starting to think about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always interesting when you see industry and government incentives align, which in this case, it's that the government and both industry don't want China stealing their models. I think the nuclear proliferation framework is an interesting one. I don't know if it's the only framework we should be thinking of. I've seen a lot of smart folks kind of compare this to when the government had export controls on encryption, which turned out to not be such a great thing as we wanted to get that technology into the hands of people for privacy and human rights issues. So I think national security isn't the only way we should be looking at this. Yeah. So I know Elias is going to get into this and a lot more in his discussion that's coming up with Ann Newberger. Thanks so much, Tanya Riley. Thanks. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com slash security to access resources and expertise to get started today. I'm joined today by Ann Neuberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies in the Biden administration. Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Elias, for having me. So we're recording this episode a few days after a statement was released by the Center for AI Safety, warning about the catastrophic risks posed by AI. This is a statement that was signed by the who's who of the AI world. And I want to kick off our conversation just by reading it and having you react to it. Here's that statement. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. What do you think of that? Do you agree? Artificial intelligence and particularly large language models, which we can talk about more, do present great risk to our societies, our economies, and our national security. Two caveats to that. One, Unless we get ahead of it through thoughtful government, private sector efforts, thoughtful collaboration with industry and academia. And they also represent dramatic promise. They have a great promise for drug discovery, sustainable infrastructure design, music, and art. So we want to ensure that as these incredible systems introduce security concerns and risks, and there are a number of them we can talk about, we also reap the benefits for our societies, our economies and work carefully to manage those risks. So there's this whole burgeoning community of AI experts really concerned with the idea of existential risk arising from AI that it could pose a threat to 
the human species, right? Do you buy that risk? What, what do you think of the, the work being done in, in kind of the existential threat research community? The technology is very powerful and has elements that we don't understand. And when we see powerful technologies with elements that we as humans don't completely understand, it of course leads many to fear, both experts and researchers as you're talking about, and also everyday people. My mom, my dad have asked me about it as well. So I think the key for us is to carefully parse through and think about what are the most significant risks and what can we do to try to understand them and think about thoughtful approaches to address them. And I think that is really what underpinned the president and vice president hosting a key group of AI companies at the White House a couple of weeks ago to talk about a set of voluntary controls that we believe would set in place some significant risk mitigations, give better visibility, give better transparency, and address some of the core elements of those risks. But I want to be clear, there's much we don't know about these technologies. If we don't proceed carefully, there could be significant risks, and we would potentially not gain the benefits of what these amazing and powerful technologies may bring as well. I feel like we've all had that experience in the last couple of years of our parents asking us what's happening in the world of technology. I'm curious, what do you say to your parents when they ask you about AI? What does that conversation look like for you? So the first questions are always, well, what is this? And I try to explain it in a real world way. You know, it was interesting. I recently paid a visit to Cincinnati and Chicago to understand how they were trying to use AI to improve government services. And the example that I found most interesting was, you know, they have a 911 center and there are so many different kinds of calls that can come into a 911 center and you have people who are afraid, people of different accents. And they talked about how they're using artificial intelligence to help train people in a couple of ways. One is to glean across the history of questions asked to understand what are the most common questions, what have been the most effective answers and ways to calm people who are panicking. And the piece I found most interesting is customize the training based on the kinds of questions the trainee is answering wrong so that they can get more of those kinds of questions and really learn. So that gives a good example of how bringing all of that data together, both the phone calls that came in, the answers that were given to see what's most effective, then customizing it to that person can really be a way that all that data brought together and the algorithms that make sense of it can improve something so fundamental to a critical service to an individual who is facing something frightening. So it doesn't sound like you're an AI doomer, is that right? Probably fair to say I'm not generally a doomer. Okay. Um, it's hard to work cybersecurity and be responsible for like responding to national cyber attacks and be a doomer. Most of technology is dual purpose. Elias, you know this so well, right? Most of technology, there are things that bring tremendous benefit and things that bring significant risks. There's software code that's written to break systems, malicious code, and there's software systems that fundamentally underpin our entire lives. So I think our goals are to try as much as we can to understand the most significant risks and shape policy in an agile way to respond to those and to respond quickly. I want to be clear that artificial intelligence, I do believe, presents very new and major risks, many of which we don't fully understand how they will play out. So I think we need to think through those carefully and do so 
both as governments, but also in close partnership with the companies building these technologies who know them most at hand, who can put in place the red teaming, the trust and safety protections that will be so key, as well as to researchers who think thoughtfully and can really delve deeply and explore how we can, as I mentioned, glean those benefits, but also manage the risks, understand the risks in a rapid and ongoing way. Let's dig into those, some of those risks. What are the security concerns that are top of mind for you right now? What do you think needs to be addressed in the short term? In the short term, I talked about some specific areas of risks. For example, enabling the design of malware, enabling more precise deep fakes, customizing spearfish and potential bioweapons. So those are kind of three categories of concern, that they could enable more effective, more rapid cyber attacks as a society, that they could rapidly and bring precision to disinformation. You know, we saw recently that picture of an explosion at the Pentagon. And clearly in an environment we have now where everybody's getting information delivered to them very, very quickly, disinformation delivered with precision could cause concerns, could make people afraid, could lead to crises that are manufactured crises, and certainly a concern about bioweapons. So those are very much the concerns that are top of mind for us. I think the photo of the explosion at the Pentagon is a great example. I'm curious what your read is on that incident. On the one hand, clearly a lot of people fell for it very quickly, right? But then on the other hand, it was also debunked quite quickly. Mm -hmm. How do you interpret that sequence of events? What's the lesson for you from that one? I think that's a fantastic question. Two plus one. I think the first piece is we're all working to kind of teach ourselves that when you see something, question right away first. Does that seem likely? Is there an alternative source? So much information comes at us from so many ways. We've all been learning, I think, to or trying to teach ourselves to kind of pause Twitter had that campaign a number of years ago, not instantly retweeting broadly, like pausing and saying, who would want me to think this? Who would want me to know this? Let me make sure I validate. I think the second piece is key. The fact that the Arlington Fire Department, a local entity, quickly responded was key because we're going to need to tighten those response times. A formally coordinated statement is never going to work. And I think the third piece is the provenance piece, which is the more that authentic pictures, video, text can be marked so that people start to look for that mark to say, oh, this is real. And there are various efforts that have been underway for some time, both across industry to add provenance marking sources, kind of areas you saw Google's recent announcement regarding watermarking on generative AI. Those are key because I think that's the third part of it to say, how do we almost whitelist as we used to talk about from a cybersecurity perspective? that we ensure that what is authentic is clearly marked to be authentic. And a lot of research looking into that area to both say, how do you mark it as authentic and how do you make it hard to remove those authenticity marks? Can you talk a bit more about that watermarking piece? That's something that researchers have been working on for many years. It's been held out as a potential solution for quite some time. I'm curious what you think of the state of the technology and then also how you think a watermarking solution for AI-generated content should look like. Is that something where the private sector needs to be leading on it? Do you think that that's something where 
government potentially be stepping in and writing rules around watermarking? Mm -hmm. So first, for those who you know, may not be familiar with the term, think perhaps an equivalent concept is when we're online, when we're on the internet and we look at our browser and you see that green padlock. And that green padlock tells you there's a whole set of complex steps that that, that is a secure connection. Behind that are various things, certificates from the website, the browser entity validating that, a way to retract the confidence in a given certificate if it is no longer valid. But that doesn't matter. To the entity looking at it, they say, oh, a green padlock means this is a secure transaction. It's safe for me to shop online. This is a, this is a, a safe page. But I think when we look at watermarking, the technology varies for text, for video, for images. But it, the technology is certainly matured enough to where putting a watermark on something and making it somewhat difficult to remove it is possible. And I think you've seen a number of artificial intelligence of specifically gen of AI firms say they will do that. The reason it's important is because it gives a way to separate authentic content from artificial intelligence generated content. So it could be a flag to help individuals make a distinction between the two. We think it's absolutely private sector leading in that way because the private sector AI models are the ones who know whether it is generated content or real content. Okay. There's been some push from folks within private industry, in particular open AI, that they want to use an arms control framework to regulate AI. Sam Altman has called for the creation of an international atomic energy agency, but for AI, do you think arms control and non-proliferation frameworks have maybe lessons for how we should be regulating AI? It's a good point. And there's certainly the international aspect of how we approach this that's important here. So there's an active policy process underway looking across the different threats and considering what are the right tools to address them, considering what executive actions we can take, where the administration can work with Congress. You know, and as we work through that process, though, we are taking a number of actions to address the threats today. So, for example, the White House has been engaging regularly with key AI companies to ensure robust testing and security measures are in place to help address these threats and these harms today. Because there's a time sequence here. We can talk about longer term efforts, but we wanna make sure we're focusing on the threats today. I think you've seen the vice president hosted a meeting with leading AI companies, and she focused on a few key things. One was the need for companies to be transparent with the public, certainly with policymakers, about the data that's going into their AI systems, what data is being trained, being able to evaluate, verify, and validate the safety, security, and the use of these systems, and to ensure that they're secure from malicious attacks. We hosted key firms for classified cybersecurity briefings, and then deep dive discussions on best cybersecurity practices, practices to address insider threats, and offered assistance and ongoing discussion and collaboration in that space. And finally, to your point, there is on the policy front, we're looking, as I said, executive branch potential regulation, certainly talking with our international partners as well, but we're very much focused on efforts that can be done today 
efforts that can be done in the medium term and then longer term discussions like the ones you know, dealing with international partners around the world to say, much as other powerful technologies, let's build a framework to control for those risks, to control for the proliferation of those technologies. Okay. I feel like we could talk about AI all day, but I do want to hit a couple of other issues while we're chatting. And I want to pivot a little bit and maybe talk a little bit about the international cyber threat landscape. And one of the big success stories of the past year, I think, has been the effort to assist and partner with Ukraine in its fight against Russia, including in cyberspace, right? Trying to stop Russian attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure in particular. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of that partnership work that's happening in the U.S. government with international partners and what you've learned from that effort. Absolutely. So I can talk about Ukraine briefly, and then I'll talk about some of the broader international partnerships, as you noted. So Ukraine has been a really insightful example of the power of what we call the three Ps, the power of partnership, the power of preparation, and particularly the power of the private sector. So when we talk about partnership, you know, in the run-up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as we saw that intelligence, and really looking back, actually, to 2014-15, when Ukraine learned the hard way about the capability and power of Russia's offensive cyber program when they faced disruption of their energy grid. At that time, Ukraine welcomed ongoing help from the international community in securing their energy grid. And really in the couple of weeks before the invasion, they disconnected from the Russian grid and connected to the European grid because they knew the grid was indefensible if it was one connected grid. So they really used those six, seven years to focus on improving their cybersecurity. When the invasion started, the private sector surged in, whether it was moving data to the cloud, whether it was ensuring the best in class cybersecurity defenses, and certainly from the international community's perspective, We were talking daily with Ukrainian counterparts, pushing, sharing information, sharing cybersecurity best practices. We continue to talk regularly with our Ukrainian counterparts. Beyond Ukraine, you know, the administration has really put a real focus on international partnerships in a very focused way. So I'll talk first a moment about the International Counter Ransomware Initiative. We felt the largest international cyber partnership to combat ransomware because it was hitting global pocketbooks, small, medium companies, critical infrastructure, hospitals, governments around the world. And that cyber coalition, which we launched in October, 2021, virtually convened 32 international partners that grew to 37 at its first anniversary this past October, and has grown by three more countries and Interpol since then. And what's most unique about it is traditionally when we think about cybersecurity allies, we think about resilience. And in this one, it's broader. We said, look, the root of ransomware is illicit use of cryptocurrency. It's fundamentally a money-making enterprise. So we have a real focus on countering illicit use of crypto. There's a focus on diplomacy because many of these actors are harbored, are based in Russia. And finally, on that capacity building international way. We've done exercises with, you know, essentially splitting the group in two for time zones so countries can learn from each other because it's by intention, countries with a lot of capacity and countries with not a lot of capacity from Nigeria to Costa Rica, et cetera. So you see that thing. We'll host the next meeting in October 
And it's been really cool the way it's taken on some tough policy issues like, should governments ban ransom payments? And having that discussion across countries, so we learn from each other, we learn different policies countries have tried and what's been effective. And I think one of the most interesting takeaways, Elias, that we didn't expect at the beginning was that by not making it about any adversary country, by making it about cybercrime, we avoided, you know, some countries won't come together publicly to counter China. Some countries won't come together publicly to counter Russia. That's avoided because everybody's struggling with crime. So you can build the operational partnerships. You can build the policy linkages. You mentioned China, and we recently learned of a major Chinese operation targeting U.S. critical infrastructure in Guam. This was an operation called Volt Typhoon. Microsoft described it as an operation that could have laid the groundwork for cutting off communications between the United States and Asia in the event of a crisis. Quite a claim. So first off, I want to ask you, was that an accurate assessment? And then second, can you shed any additional light on what this Chinese actor was up to? China's cyber capabilities and their ability to conduct destructive or disruptive cyber operations is a very serious threat to critical infrastructure in the United States and critical infrastructure around the world. And in fact, the purpose of the joint U.S. government and key allies cybersecurity release that happened around the same time as Microsoft's product was to equip network defenders. It's a really technical product because it has a number of items where it details Chinese techniques to attempt to compromise critical infrastructure and the ways to detect that and the ways to defend against that. So I make a distinction here, Elias, between espionage and a potential capability to disrupt critical services. And the latter category is something we are incredibly focused on. The Biden administration has put a relentless focus on improving the security of critical infrastructure because essentially there is no separation between military and civilian critical infrastructure. So, yeah, let me, let me press you on that just a little bit. Do you think that it's accurate to understand that this particular Chinese operation as laying the groundwork for using a cyber capability to disrupt communications between the United States and Asia in the event of a crisis, let's say a potential military confrontation over Taiwan? It's always hard to know intentions, Elias. So we focus on what we find, evicting it, and defending against it. We're in this incredible moment of tension between the United States and China. We see the administration try to restart dialogue with China, but it's one step forward and two steps back at times with the relationship with China. And I'm curious how that's playing out from where you sit. Do you see any change in the way that Chinese hacking groups are operating in cyberspace and reacting to tensions between the United States and China? So we've seen really two lines of Chinese effort. One, a significant program is focused on hacking to steal research and technology military, commercial, and really advanced Chinese capabilities. That's a real concern. And there's been really heightened information sharing between government and private sector entities, things like those public products, things like quiet one-on-one -on -one communications to share details of the Chinese techniques and enable government and companies to defend themselves better. The second piece is what we talked about, which is 
Chinese state-sponsored cyber actors establishing compromised infrastructure and using that to compromise critical infrastructure for potentially disruptive or destructive operations in the future. We're incredibly focused on both of those threats and have taken real steps, particularly on the second one. So before January 2021, you were required to have certain cybersecurity practices in place, kind of the way we have safety practices in place. As you know, our critical infrastructure is owned and operated by private companies. And following Colonial, which was truly a wake-up call, I think everybody saw that you had a major pipeline, the sole pipeline along the eastern seaboard, that didn't have basic cybersecurity practices in place that could defend against a criminal actor. So we quickly reviewed our government authorities, what we could do, and moved quickly in that space. So for example, TSA, under the leadership of David Pekoski, now has put in place minimum cybersecurity requirements for oil and gas, for rail systems, as well as for airports and airlines. Beyond TSA, the EPA has released first-time ever cybersecurity requirements for water systems, and we're working very closely with HHS and VA on healthcare, approaching it very deliberately because those are life-saving processes and practices, and we want to ensure that as we add cybersecurity requirements, we don't disrupt those. So both that work as well as work to fundamentally improve the security of software have been a key focus to address the threats you're describing. So I close by asking a bit about your broader portfolio. I mean, you have an incredible number of issues that you're across with this emerging technology and cyber portfolio. The number of issues that kind of fall under that umbrella are remarkable. And I'm curious, are there any ideas or issues in your space that you wish people were paying more attention to? So first I would say one of the, really the privileges of the job is my job is to coordinate policy across the U.S. government. And I learn every day about elements of the U.S. government doing cool work that we weren't quite aware of. So for example, you know, when you talk about Chinese capabilities or threats against critical infrastructure, that would have traditionally been thought about as a national security problem, right? So you'd have the Department of Defense, the State Department, the Department of Justice in the room. But to really tackle it, you need the agencies who know those sectors best, the ones who know our nation's pipelines, the ones who know if a foreign adversary wanted to compromise a water system, how would they do that? What's possible? How do you protect against it? So we now have these discussions that not only include the traditional national security community, but also include the EPAs, the DOTs, the FAAs, the HHSs of the world. And it's been interesting to build the processes. So the intelligence community can be briefing EPA leadership on cyber threats, perhaps for the first time, and enabling that deeper knowledge as it really is cross domestic and international problem set and being effective in addressing it requires that kind of teamwork and collaboration across both domestic and traditional national security agencies. Okay, great. And thank you so much for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Elias. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google. Together, Mandiant with Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com slash security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review. 
and share it with your friends, your mom, or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com. I did find the prop. <laughs> we should do it. <laughs> A modernist architecture pushing boundaries high, straight lines, open skies, open spaces reaching for the sky. From Bauhaus to the Glasshouse, it's a new vibe. Put it at the end of the episode. It's like a little treat.